The following message was given at Emanuel Baptist Church, Coconut Creek, Florida. If you'll join me in your Bibles, Exodus chapter 2. Exodus chapter 2. And this evening we'll be looking at verses 1 through 10. In December of 1931, in New York City, while on a lecture tour, attempting to recover his losses from the 1929 stock market crash, Winston Churchill was wandering around the streets looking for his friend's apartment. He was halfway across Fifth Avenue, and he was looking in the wrong direction, and he was struck by a car that almost killed him. Immediately upon arriving in his hospital room, Churchill told the staff that they should guard him from any interruptions. And propped up in his bed, he went to work writing an article called My New York Misadventure. He promptly sold the article for $2,500 and in good Winston Churchill fashion used the proceeds to take a trip to the Bahamas. About eight and a half years later in 1939, World War II began, and the following year, in 1940, Churchill became the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom and was instrumental in leading the Allied forces against the Axis powers. There is no doubt that the outcome of World War II would have been very different without Churchill's leadership, his fiery speeches, his brilliant diplomacy, and yet... Just a few years earlier, in New York City, his life was almost ended. Now, there are many seemingly small and insignificant events that happen each and every day. But the bigger picture, we realize in time that the entire course of history could be played out completely different. We have no way of knowing, of course, what World War II would have been without Churchill, but I cannot imagine that the results would have been what they were. Now, as Christians, of course, we understand all of this to be the works of God's providence. His purposes always come to pass as he ordains the beginning and the end of our lives, but it is good to recognize that the small things have a significant impact on the eventual outcomes to see just how much God is at work in our everyday lives. He fulfills his plans. Now, all of us probably have stories like this. And while we didn't lead multiple nations to victory in a world war, there are small things that changed our lives. I think of all the decisions that I made as a young man that led to a seemingly chance meeting one day in Albuquerque, New Mexico, when I met a young lady who caught my eye. A few seconds earlier or later, it never would have happened. And more than likely, 21 years later, I wouldn't be standing right here today. We've all likely had those events. We've all had close calls or random events or things that seemed insignificant that happened in our lives that turned out to be the very thing that rerouted our course forever. 
And as we come into Exodus chapter two, we're going to see a small event that had it happened any differently than it did, we would have changed the entire scope of human history in a far more significant way than the near death of Winston Churchill in 1931. We go back to the story when the Pharaoh was doing all that he could to put his boot on the necks of the Hebrew people in Egypt. First, of course, you remember he was seeking to destroy them by ensuring that they had a heavy burden as slaves, working day and night in harsh conditions to build a civilization. And yet the Hebrews continued to flourish. They continued to grow as a people group. God continued to bless them. And so then he demanded that the Hebrew boys be killed by the midwives as soon as they were born. Well, of course, the midwives, by faith, determined to not do what the Pharaoh had commanded. And so when that didn't work, he decided the boys should just be tossed into the Nile River while the Hebrew girls would be allowed to live. And thus ended chapter one of Exodus. Now at this point, we could only imagine the feelings of helplessness and grief amongst the Hebrew people this Pharaoh would obviously stop at nothing to destroy this people. But we've seen all along, God is at work in the background. He's fulfilling his promise to create a people who once were not a people, to bring about a nation that once was not a nation. And no matter how hard Pharaoh tries, the Israelites continue to multiply and we see that the biggest acts of God are sometimes found in the smallest details. So let's look together beginning in verse one of Exodus chapter two. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river. While her, young woman, while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. 
Well, at the beginning of this narrative, we have a proverbial Gordian knot. Now, as the story goes, in 333 BC, the Macedonian conqueror Alexander the Great marched his army into the Phrygian capital of Gordium. And upon arriving in the city, he encountered an ancient wagon. And this wagon uh, was tied with several entangled knots that made a seemingly impossible thing to untie. There was no way to understand how it was tied up. And an oracle had declared that any man who could unravel this elaborate knot was destined to become the ruler of all of Asia. Alexander took this as a challenge, and after wrestling with the knot for a while, he decided to take another course of action, and he declared, it makes no difference how this knot is loosed. And so he drew his sword, and he sliced the knot in half with a single stroke of the blade. The young king was hailed as the wise conqueror of an ancient puzzle. And that same night, Gordium experienced a thunder and lightning storm with Alexander and all of his men, taking that as a sign from the gods that they were pleased and true to the oracle's word. He went on to conquer Egypt and large portions of Asia before he died at the age of 32. Now today, of course, we refer to the Gordian knot when we face an intricate problem, a a seemingly insurmountable difficulty. How can we come to a creative decision or a decisive solution to solve a seemingly impossible problem? Well, the Gordian knot of Exodus 2 is presented right here in the first few verses. Remember, the Pharaoh's edict is clear. All of the Hebrew boys must die. Throw them in the Nile. Now, of course, the Hebrew people were obviously not going to follow through with this, with this act of needlessly killing their own children. So what could they do? Well, in verse 1, we begin with what might seem an unimportant description of this situation. But as is always the case in the Bible, the details matter. As we said at the beginning, the small things matter. The Lord is preparing a deliverer. And so it's important that we are told that these parents are from the house of Levi. The Levites were tasked later on with the religious duties among the Israelites, and so the task of the priestly line that would later be inaugurated with Moses and with Aaron, it was to mediate between the people and God. The Levites would represent God to the people, and they would represent the people to God. Now, while Moses did not do this in the religious sense with ritual practice, he most certainly would eventually in the physical sense through the actual events of his life and his leadership with the Israelites. And so it's significant that the first thing we read about this young boy being born is that he was a Levite. It's a clue that in time we will see Moses representing God to the Israelites and representing the Israelites to God. In this sense, of course, Moses serves as a type of Christ, a mediator through whom the people of God experience deliverance. It's clear from chapter one that a deliverance is necessary. And so the narrative shifts to show us how God planned to bring it about. And he starts with a very normal, a very human means. A lowly 
Hebrew couple for all intents and purposes who were now slaves of Egypt. But this is the way of God, isn't it? As we considered back in chapter one, he often uses the nothings and nobodies of the world to bring everything into conformity with the plan that he has had since the very beginning. So these two young Levites meet. They get married, and then verse two says, the woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. Now, there's much discussion about what was meant here by she saw a fine child. I'm certain that's what my mother said when she saw me. (laughs) Did it mean he was attractive? You know, every now and then you see a baby and you say, oh, it's a baby. (laughs) It may not be the most beautiful child you've ever seen. Needs to grow into it a little bit, right? But it's probably not about how he looked necessarily, but more along the fact that he was her son. And he, to her, was beautiful. Perhaps he had a face that only a mother could love, but she loved him. And so it would be easy then to read the narrative of Exodus and miss all of these little details, but even to miss the significance of what was done. And specifically here, as we see that the mother hid him for three months. And we, of course, can understand the mother and father, the family working together to hide this young boy. But the New Testament so often helps us to understand what is going on beyond what we can see as we read. This is actually highlighted by the writer to the Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 23, he writes, By faith, Moses, when he was born was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Now, this wasn't, this wasn't something that Moses' parents did on a whim or simply because they thought it would be a good idea or they saw him and said, thank God he's an attractive boy. If he was an ugly boy, we were going to toss him into the Nile. Right? But we learn it was done by faith, and they were not afraid. In other words, their faith in God triumphed over their fear of death under the Pharaoh. They believed that God would watch over them. They believed that that being obedient to God was more important than following the Pharaoh's edict. And of course, there is also the natural human response of a parent. I have three children of my own. I cannot imagine what the feeling would be like in a situation like this. They want to do everything they can to protect their baby boy. It's unthinkable that they would say, well, we love our newborn son. We are so thankful that the Lord has given him to us, but the king said to toss him into the Nile River, so we have to follow his edict. That's nonsense. A parent will do whatever they have to do to protect their child, even in the face of danger. It's our job, it's our calling, it's our responsibility. And and the Lord has built that into our hearts. Our children will never know just how far we are willing to go for their good. And anyone could read this and see that there's no way that a sane person would take their own child and obey Pharaoh's edict. 
But beyond the natural human response, the writer of the Hebrews says this was done by faith. They didn't know what would happen. They really had no idea what the outcome would be, but they hid Moses by faith and trusted that God would provide a way. So imagine the scenario. Try to think of yourself in that place. You're a slave couple. You have a new baby boy. And the tyrannical king says that he's supposed to be killed. And now you have to find a way to hide him. And we're not talking about them being in a a nice, well-built home with soundproof walls and comfortable living conditions. I think the Lord graciously helps us forget the first few months of a child's life because they're so difficult. But we remember enough to know that there's no such thing as a quiet baby. Maybe for three months. He starts to cry. His mother can nurse him, maybe get him back to sleep. But in time, that that little newborn baby cry that maybe sounds like a baby lamb, it becomes a gut-wrenching, ear-piercing, panic-inducing scream that people far and wide can hear. And so three months have passed and they couldn't keep him uh, hidden anymore. And so what is a mother to do? Verse three, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. Now, in chapter one, we already saw the crafty ways in which the Hebrew midwives interpreted Pharaoh's edict. And here again, we see something that tells that the parents are determined to cut this Gordian knot. They had probably talked about it for weeks, perhaps ever since the day he was born. What will we do? How will we protect him? If the Pharaoh wanted the Hebrew boys in the Nile River, this Hebrew boy would be in the Nile River. No problem. However, It just wouldn't happen in the way that Pharaoh had intended. Again, you can imagine the scenario. Two broken-hearted parents who love their son so much, knowing all that is at stake, and now they will willingly let him go instead of seeing him die. So with all of the courage that a mother could muster, she bundled him up and found a basket suitable for a vessel on the river She waterproofed it and she placed him in the basket and closed the lid. By faith, Moses' parents believed God's promises. By faith, Moses' parents were assured that obeying their great God and preserving the life of their child was far more important and far more significant than obeying Pharaoh. By faith, they put their own lives at risk to save their baby boy, and all of their fear was set aside. Now, of course, it's unlikely that Moses' mother, Jochebed was her name, it's unlikely that she was just sitting back and hoping that fate would take over to Moses' advantage. She had a plan. Notice the text says, she placed the basket among the reeds by the riverbank. Now, these are reeds that would grow thick and and tall. 
She didn't just put him out in the middle of the fast-moving river to be swept away. No, she was meticulous in her care. A tender-hearted mother, she, she placed her heart inside the basket. I imagine her kissing her baby boy on his face and setting him gently in this basket along the bank. A mother could only do this by faith. The Lord gave her the gift of a son, and truly it was trusting the Lord. And it's only in trusting the Lord that she could turn her son back over to the Lord by faith. Now remember, Moses is the one who's writing all of this. He's recounting what happened when he was a baby. And he deliberately used a Hebrew word that is translated here as basket. That is the same word that is translated as ark in Genesis 6.14. The ark from Genesis, of course, is the boat that Noah built to save his family and all the world's animals from the great flood. And so Moses' intention is to suggest that this basket served as a vessel of redemption. Not only would Moses' life be spared because of it, but the Israelites would eventually be rescued, taken away from the tyranny of a wicked king. One commentator writes, this is certainly not a mere coincidence. In both instances, one worthy of being saved and destined to bring salvation to others is to be rescued from death by drowning. In Genesis, the salvation of humanity is involved, and here in Exodus, it is the salvation of the chosen people. Noah and Moses passed through the waters of death on an ark. This was a vessel of salvation. And so you see all of the little details are adding up. All of the decisions that are made are leading to something far greater than Moses' young Levite parents could have ever imagined. They are cutting the Gordian knot, but what would happen from there? Again, I imagine Jochebed placed the basket in the reeds of the water and slowly backed away, never taking her eyes off of that basket. But there was also another set of eyes on that basket. Remember, the Hebrew girls were safe. Pharaoh had declared that they could live. And so Jochebed sent her daughter, probably Miriam, to watch the basket carefully. Not too close, but close enough to see what happens. Verse four, and his sister stood at a distance, Moses' sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Maybe she went on her own, but my guess is that she was probably quite young. And they just put their son down in the Nile River, so I imagine they actually sent her to watch and they had a conversation with this little girl. Watch your brother. Don't get caught, but don't let your eyes off of him. Wherever the basket goes, you go. If you've ever babysat a kid, this is like the greatest adventure in babysitting. Don't lose the child. By the way, he's going to be floating down the river. But Jochebed wasn't, she wasn't abandoning her son. She was turning him over to the loving care of God. And her daughter became a means to a far greater end. They've acted in faith. They've sent their daughter to keep watch. And so what will the outcome be? 
Well, the remainder of this passage shows us that God rewards faithfulness in unexpected ways. Look at verse five. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. It was a remarkable work of God's providence. At just the right time, at just the right place, a young woman goes to bathe at the river when the basket is coming by. But this was no ordinary woman. This was the daughter of the Pharaoh himself. It's very likely that she would have been well known throughout Egypt. So when Miriam saw that the daughter of the Pharaoh discovered the basket in which her brother resided, she was probably a bit frightened. What was going to happen? What would she do? Will she obey her father's decree? Verse six, when she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. She heard the crying, she saw the baby and she expressed something of her humanity. She had pity on the boy. Now, most likely, she saw that the boy was circumcised, so she recognized immediately that he was a Hebrew boy. Now, surely, Miriam would have thought, it's all over now. I know who that is. I know who her father is, and I know what she thinks she has to do. What will she do with him? What can I do now if she throws him into the river? Is there any way for me to rescue my brother? And so Miriam acts quickly. Verse seven, then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse this child for you? Now again, we can all sort of brush over these details many times as we read, but this is another instance where we see the courage of a young woman. There's no doubt that a young Hebrew girl would not typically just walk up to the princess and offer her a suggestion of what to do. But like her mother and father, she was willing to do whatever it took to protect her brother. And God used her to bring about an astonishing outcome. Pharaoh's daughter didn't shoo her away or call on guards to seize her while she threw the boy into the Nile in obedience to her father's decree. No, verse eight tells us Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Here's another instance where those who have a poor understanding of how biblical ethics work might point and say, well, Miriam lied to Pharaoh's daughter. She knew she was going to get, her, uh, to get her mother. She knew she wasn't going to get a nurse. In many cultures throughout history, babies weren't necessarily nursed by their mothers, but by women who were designated as nurses who would breastfeed the babies. But remember, Moses' mother was hiding her son for three months, so she would have been the one nursing him. She had milk, and she would easily pass as a Hebrew nurse instead of the boy's mother. So Miriam went to get her mother, and she brought her to Pharaoh's daughter and presented her as a nurse to the Hebrew children. Verse 9, And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, 
Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. And so the woman took the child and nursed him. Imagine the emotion, the swing of emotions in the span of probably only a few hours, perhaps throughout the day, brokenhearted and devastated as they put their boy into the water and now their boy back in their arms rejoicing. Imagine the rejoicing that took place in their home that night. The plan worked. We trusted God with our son and he rescued him. He protected our boy. He saved our boy. I will guess there were many tears and much celebration. Not only was their boy saved from death, he was now free to live. No more hiding No more secrecy. He could be out in the open because not only had the Pharaoh's daughter determined that he should live, but she is now paying Moses' own mother to raise her own son all at the Pharaoh's expense. And now she could raise him during the most important years of his young life because she knew, she knew the day would come when he would have to return to Pharaoh's household. But until then, he could learn. He could learn about the covenant-keeping God of the Hebrew people. He could learn about God's promises. He could be encouraged to look to him by faith, trusting that he would do good for his people even when things looked impossible, just as he had done in this very situation. This would prove invaluable in Moses' life later when God used him to redeem his people. He would learn how to love God's people. He would learn how to hear God's voice. He would learn how to respond to God's call. Now, Jochebed and her husband acted on faith and God blessed them. It wasn't how they expected. Who in the world could have predicted this outcome? But he blessed them. God always does what is best for his people. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God is always working out what is best for you even when things seem like a tangled knot that is too difficult to untie? Parents, do you believe that God is always watching over your children even if they're floating down the Nile? While things seem backward, upside down, bleak, terrifying, confusing, or even deadly, do you trust that the outcome is exactly what the Lord would have it to be for his glory and for your good? Time and time again, we are shown in the scriptures that there will be things that happen that in the moment we don't understand. We may be anxious, we may be fearful. We may be confused. We may feel hopeless. But when we live by faith, we can have a confident trust in our hearts that the Lord is doing exactly what needs to be done. And all the little details matter. You may not see it now. It may be years down the road before you understand. And it may even be in glory when all the details are actually revealed to us. But we have to remind ourselves It's for his glory and it is for our good. 
This was planned before the foundations of the earth. This is why we can consider it all joy when we face trials of various kinds because our Lord has promised that he will never leave us or forsake us. So often I think we read a story like this and what we really think in our minds is, well, yes, of course, God did that and he can do that, but my situation isn't this situation. My circumstances are different. My situation is far more hopeless and the Lord doesn't seem to be doing anything to change it. Be honest, that's in our hearts sometimes, isn't it? But that's the very reason we have what we have right here in the Bible. To remind us that God blesses us even in very unexpected ways using unexpected means at unexpected times. Brothers and sisters, may the Lord help us to live by faith and never doubt his faithfulness and his care and his love for us and his plans because they are far greater than ours. As we see here, God helped Moses' parents act shrewdly. God moved in the heart of Pharaoh's daughter to defy her own father's decree. God helped Miriam to know what to do in an instant for her brother. It all seems unbelievable. It all seems so unlikely, and yet it happened. And they all happened, every one of these events, according to the providence of God to accomplish his plan of salvation for his people. God saved this child Moses so that he could save his children, the Israelites, so that he could save you and me. One commentator writes, Moses is spared by being cast onto the very Nile that was to drown him, is treated with maternal kindness by the daughter of the very king who had condemned him and to those descendants he would become a nemesis and is assigned as a responsibility with pay to the woman in all the world who most wanted the best for him, his own mother. From beginning to end, we can truly rejoice Brothers and sisters, salvation belongs to our God. We can only imagine how thankful Moses' family was for every moment that they had with him in those early days. Every giggle, every squeeze of his hand, every kick of his foot, his first word, his first steps. All the kisses, all the baths, all the snuggles, all the naps together, and even the diapers. Take in every second because they will be gone soon. And then all you have is a memory. As difficult as they are, and I know we have a lot of new mothers, new fathers in here, as difficult as those days are, take them in. Thank God for them. Because soon, those little human beings become big human beings. And then all of a sudden, they have opinions and plans. And they get really expensive. Every stage of parenting has its own challenges and its own rewards. So delight in one of the greatest gifts that you will ever have in this world. The job of the parent is to love their child to raise them to understand the goodness and the glory of God. In light of their own sinful nature, 
but to point them to the Lord Jesus Christ that they too might live by faith and to pray for them more than we've ever prayed for anything else in this life and to entrust them to God just like Moses' parents did because as difficult as it may be, one day they have to become their own man or their own woman. God has plans for them too. And I imagine there's even greater joy in seeing your adult children grow up to live by faith, to raise their own children that honor the Lord. And then, as far as I can tell, with my parents, with my kids, you get to have all of the fun and none of the challenges. Son, your baby needs his diaper changed. Daughter, your girl is crying. Take her. (laughs) That sounds amazing. (laughs) But Jochebed knew these days wouldn't last forever. Verse 10, when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. Now, of course, it was a difficult thing to do. But Moses lived. And in time, his parents would see that God had plans beyond their wildest imagination. It was all part of what God was doing to fulfill his covenant promise. I wonder if Pharaoh's daughter brought her newly adopted son to her father. And he said, what in the world are you doing? Like a kid bringing home a stray puppy dog they found on the side of the road. What are you doing? Maybe she batted her eyes and said, please, daddy, can we keep him? And he let it all happen. But little did he know what would come. Moses wasn't going to grow up as a son in a slave family, but he was going to grow up in the best living arrangements that any boy at that time could ever possibly have. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen stood before the Sanhedrin and recounted this very event. He said to them, as the time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt greatly increased. Then another king who knew nothing about Joseph became ruler of Egypt. He dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so that they would die. At that time, Moses was born, and he was no ordinary child. For three months, he was cared for in his father's house. When he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and in action. And this final verse, verse 22 of Acts chapter 7, it gives us great insight into what God was doing. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and in action. And so he has his, his Hebrew upbringing as a young child, however old he was, before he's turned back over to Pharaoh's daughter. He, he knows his roots at least among the Hebrew people and then he receives all of the education and the wisdom of the Egyptians. At the time, there truly was no greater education or training available. 
Historical evidence suggests that he would have learned linguistics and astronomy and music and architecture and mathematics and law and medicine. He would have even had a front row seat to the art of diplomacy. And in time, we learn in Exodus chapter 11 that the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the Egyptian people. You see, what Pharaoh didn't know, and of course, what he really couldn't have known, was that when he started a battle with God that he couldn't win, that it was all over before it ever started, he would eventually bring a young boy into his courts, and that young boy would be used by God to take all of the training that he received, and in an earthly sense, use it to overthrow the one that provided it all to him in the first place. God had a plan, and God was working his plan. Pharaoh had no idea, and Pharaoh's daughter had no idea. Jochebed and Miriam and Moses' father had no idea. Of course, Moses was a baby. He had no idea. But God was working his plan, preparing the boy Moses for when he was a man to lead his people out of Egypt. It all seems so unlikely, doesn't it? That God would send a baby to rescue his people from a powerful, tyrannical king. That's so often the case, isn't it? The entire plan of redemption hung on the conception and birth of a baby. We saw that in the womb of Sarah, a woman that was long past having a womb that would bear a child. The father of the nation of Israel was not the firstborn, but the secondborn male, a child with no rights and few assets. The deliverer of Jacob's family the one who worked through a devastating famine. He wasn't the oldest. He wasn't the second oldest of 12 boys, but he was the 11th born son. The great King David, he wasn't the typical monarch. He was the eighth born of his family. And of course, and most importantly, God sent his own son to be born to a young virgin girl in a lowly stable. A lowly existence, a humble beginning, Never a place to lay his head. But the Lord Jesus wouldn't have to be saved because the Lord Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. Like all of the other unlikely people that God used, Jesus was what was least expected. He wasn't a mighty king riding into Jerusalem on a white horse. He was a little baby born in the nothing town called Bethlehem. But like Abraham and Moses, and Joseph, and David, this baby would change the world. A baby born who ruled the universe. A baby boy that nobody expected, but the Bible tells us he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead 
that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Friend, do you know this man who came into the world as a baby boy to give his life as a ransom for many? By faith, you can know him, not as a young, helpless baby boy in a stable, but as a powerful, reigning king who rules from his throne in heaven forever and ever. By faith, you can come to trust in him. He invites you. He calls you. He says to you, come unto me. You are weary. You are heavy laden. You are shackled by the chains of sin. You are under the threat of death. Come to me by faith. Trust in me because Christ has lived a perfect life that you are required to live, but you cannot. Christ has died a sinner's death that you deserve to die. And yet he has died in the place of all who will call upon him. Christ was buried in the grave and raised again three days later to conquer sin and death so that all who have faith in him, all that stand upon his righteousness alone and not their own can stand before God and be declared not guilty. Friend, you can know this God. You can be saved by this God. Will you put your faith, will you put your trust in the one who gave everything that you might live. Brothers and sisters, we serve a great and glorious God. A God who uses the small, unexpected things in this world to cut all the Gordian knots of our lives to bring about the greatest ends. Far greater than we could ever hope or imagine. And so may the Lord help us to trust him with even the most precious people and moments in our lives. He is 100% irrevocably for us, and that will never change. May we hope in God all the more, and may we marvel at him as we watch his plans unfold before our eyes in the most unlikely ways. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we are so thankful that even though we go through the days of our lives often unsure, often full of fear and uncertainty, often faced with what seem to be impossible circumstances, that we can look to you and remember from your word that you are at work in even the smallest of details. Lord, you have the grains of sand in this world numbered. You know the hairs on our heads. How is it that we could ever be anxious? How is it that we could ever fear that you are not for us and working for our good? Lord, help us to trust you all the more and to rest upon your providential care. Lord, we thank you for sending your son, Jesus, into this world to live a life that we can't live, to die a death that we deserve, to be raised from that death, to give us everlasting life. 
Lord, help your children to delight in your goodness and your providential care. And I pray that you would send your spirit to give new life to those who do not know Christ. And I pray you would do it all for your glory and for the good of your church. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church and on our current building project, you can visit us online at ebcfl.org. That's ebcfl.org.